text before us this morning is Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. It's another one of these interesting texts in Acts. We're going to have several of these in which we will be reading an inspired sermon. It's the second sermon recorded of the Apostle Peter. And once again, it follows a miraculous event. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. It is indeed authoritative and sufficient for all of us. Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health, in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would take your word, that you would make it alive to us, that you would quicken us indeed, that you would grant repentance to us, 
that you would give us encouragement, that you would powerfully change us. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It has become fashionable of late to wonder if the church has any more relevance in the world. No one wants to attend church, to take time out of a valuable Sunday. You could be doing the New York Times crossword puzzle, watching the political shows, or perhaps even, for the younger among us, some cartoons. We wonder, why bother to go to church? What purpose does listening to someone talk for a half an hour or more have to do with our everyday lives? How do we know that we can be changed or we can be benefited by life in the church? And so we see people moving from the church. We see society turning on the church, seeing it not as a place of refuge, not as a place of instruction and grace, but rather as a place that is a waste of time, perhaps a place seen as intolerant. So much so that one recent biblical scholar has remarked that we seem to be moving back to pagan days. The days of the 21st century in America remind us much of the time of the apostles, when paganism was rampant, when there was rampant divorce, homosexuality, infanticide. And so we wonder, what hope is there for the church? It is at times like this that rather than huddle down and hope that the bullets don't hit us as they whiz by, rather than hunker down for the storm, we need to look at the New Testament church, look at the apostles, and see how they handled themselves in the face of a hostile society. Not just a hostile secular society, but a hostile religious society. After all, it was the religious society of the day that put to death the Lord of glory. And so if we are to conduct ourselves in a way in which we seek to see not only ourselves changed, but our society changed, we must look to Peter, to the apostles, and to see what their ministry was like. And we have another wonderful example of that this morning. We have Peter's second sermon. And Peter's sermon follows on a miraculous healing. We looked at this last week. How a beggar that Luke, the doctor, was very clear to say was lame from birth. He wasn't, he wasn't in an accident. He wasn't faking. For more than 40 years, he was unable to walk. And all he could do was beg at the gate. And then, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, he's not only up, he's not only walking, but he is bounding and jumping, praising the Lord for healing him, praising the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter takes this opportunity to describe for the people who are gathered all around not how wonderful a thing it is that this man can walk again, not how his life has been changed, not to make a press forgiving to his band of disciples. No, Peter takes this moment when everyone's eyes are upon him to minister the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to explain what the gospel is to a people who so desperately need it that they don't even know that they need it. And so this morning, we will see three things from Peter's sermon. First, we will see how Peter describes for us 
the need of the gospel. The need for the gospel. There are people in this crowd who need the gospel. They don't know it yet, but Peter is going to point it out to them. He is not going to spare them the discomfort of knowing that they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then secondly, Peter is no preacher of easy believism. Peter describes for them the demands of the gospel because there are demands that the gospel places upon us. And those demands are the same for us today as they were for those in Jerusalem. So we see the need for the gospel. We then look at the demands of the gospel. And then finally we see the promise of the gospel. As Peter lays out for them the promise of what the gospel of Jesus Christ brings. Now we don't live in first century Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But it is just as relevant to us today to hear about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's look then first at the need for the gospel. This is something that is ever present today because if you walked up to someone in the mall or on a street corner or at a Chick-fil-A and you said, excuse me, do you need the gospel? They first might say, well, what, what is that? Oh, no, I, I, I certainly don't need that. I've, maybe I need a few extra dollars in my 401k. Ha, ha, ha. I could use a new car. Well, maybe we could use a little bit better unity in our family, but no, I don't need that religious stuff. I don't need to be dependent. You see, even as we are at our most challenged, we are often tempted to push away the aid of the gospel, to think that we can do it on our own, to think that we have no need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you see, Peter has live and in color an example, an illustration of why we need the gospel. And the first is because of our brokenness. That we are broken. And you see, that illustration he has is the man who is the prototype of someone who is broken. His body doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Or at least it didn't. This lame man who has been healed gives Peter an opportunity to describe how we are broken outside of Jesus Christ. And that's why Peter focuses upon him. Now, the interesting thing is that the crowd is not really even that focused upon the lame man. The crowd's focus is first and foremost upon Peter. Secondarily, upon the lame man. And then only thirdly, upon the one in whose name the lame man was healed. You can imagine, the crowd is all abuzz. Have you ever seen anything like that before? I wonder how he did it. Was it some kind of trick? Does he have a, a healing art? Maybe there's some kind of medicine. Well, you know, my aunt over outside of town, she's had trouble with her arm. Maybe he could do something for her. Maybe he could teach me. You see, all of the focus here initially is on Peter. The, the fact is that God is once again getting their attention. They are all abuzz. You can imagine in your mind's eye a temple square filled with people, filled with the noises of people selling wares and sacrificial animals and offering up prayers. Almost like if you've ever seen video of the Wailing Wall in Israel, that times 10 or 20. And Peter and John enter in, they enter into the court and they heal a man 
And then as they stand around, people come running from every direction. And as Peter and John walk away, not seeking to gather a crowd, a crowd gathers around them. God has gotten their attention. God does this every day. He gets our attention. Sometimes he gets our attention with good news when a doctor's report comes back and we can't believe how good it is. When we hear of a child that's born, healthy, strong. When we hear of the blessing that our friends and family encouraged. But sometimes God gets our attention in another way. It's not in the healing of a lame man. It might be in a tornado that flattens a small town in Mississippi. It might be an earthquake that destroys part of a nation. It might be in a hurricane that obliterates a coast. It may be even in the danger that comes from drilling oil. God gets our attention whenever he points out to us the frailty of our existence. How we are not our own. How we are unable to solve the world's problems. We are broken. Have you ever thought even about this recent event in the Gulf? How it shows our brokenness? How mighty companies with billions of dollars and how our government calls on the brightest minds of the world to come down and see if they can find a solution to what is essentially a pretty simple thing. A hole in the ocean floor. And yet we are unable to resolve this, even as we would. You see, we are incapable. We think we have incredible power. But God reminds us time and again that that power is not our own. What's the focus of your life today? Has God gotten your attention? Or are you looking beyond Him to the blessings that He gives? Are you looking beyond Him You see, that was the temptation for those in Jerusalem. They wanted to hear from Peter. They wanted to have their ears tickled. And Peter, of course, does not oblige. He reminds them that this man was lame from birth and that it is God who has healed him. And the reminder is there. You see in verse 11, this man is clinging to Peter and John. He can't walk away. Perhaps he is afraid. Perhaps he is... So grateful. But he is front and center right there while Peter preaches. The reminder then also comes to us that we are broken. If we think about it, we're broken in our relationships, aren't we? Even those of us that have the best of marriages know that there are those occasions when a spat turns into a quarrel, turns into a fight. Words are said that are hurtful. We're broken in our relationships with our children. They don't always obey us as we wish they would. We are not as gracious to them as we ought to be. You see, we may think that we are good, but we are still not in our relationships with God as intended it to be. There is a day coming when our relationships will be perfect. We're broken in our health, just like the lame man. We may be able to speak, but we have our aches and pains, don't we? We have our diseases diagnosed and undiagnosed. Even those of us who are in the best of health realize that sometimes the knees creak and the feet ache and the heat is too much for us. 
This reminds us that we are in a sinful world. You probably haven't thought about that, but the next time that you are outside in that wondrous, non-mild Houston humidity and heat, be reminded that our world is in need of restoration. The world is not supposed to be uncomfortable. It is a sign of our brokenness. We also see it as we conduct ourselves in the world. We see our brokenness and our inability. We are not masters of the world as Adam was. Adam called every animal and named him. And how many of us have been out on a walk when someone is leading a large dog on a leash? And we're very wary because we know we are not masters of that dog. We're not masters of our creation. We are broken in need of the gospel. But it's more than just a state, a state of being broken. We are also in need of the gospel, and Peter reminds us of this, because we are in rebellion. And Peter reminds the Jews here in Jerusalem just how deep their rebellion is. He addresses them, he says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob... He has glorified His servant Jesus. This phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, takes us back to the Pentateuch. That is where it is used in Genesis, in Exodus, in Deuteronomy. He is reminding the Jews that the God of their fathers, the God that they have always known, the God that they have claimed to worship, is active, alive, and at work right before them. He is not some monument of history. He is not some figment of myth. He is very real. The one that their fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers have worshipped, He has broken into their life and shown them that He has power. Peter reminds them that it's not just their God, but it's our God. You see, it is the God of our fathers. Peter identifies with them. The one that he serves is the one that they should worship. And he begins then reminding them, laying out for them the biblical path of this story. You see, for Peter, this is not some incident that just occurs. This is not the equivalent of channel surfing. Have you ever done that? You flip through the channels and something comes up and, oh, well, it's 20 minutes in. I wonder what's happening. I wonder who he is. I wonder who she is. No. Peter says, this event that you have seen is in a stream of history. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the one who delivered the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he says at the end of his sermon, he says, this is the one that Moses predicted. This is the one that Samuel spoke of. This is the one that all of the prophets spoke of. You see, what is happening here is a story that is a part of a bigger story. The story of the Bible. And Peter has a very interesting way of calling attention to this. He says that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, the word here for servant is a very interesting word. Some of you may know there is another word for servant that means slave. Perhaps you've seen it in translations as bond servant or bond slave. And it's the Greek word for being a slave. This word is actually the word for child 
or son. But it is used as servant in the Old Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the servant is the one in Isaiah 52 and 53. You know those chapters, don't you? Where Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. This is the servant of the Lord. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, when Peter refers to Jesus as the servant, everyone there would know he is talking about the Messiah. The Messiah of Isaiah. The Messiah of Jeremiah. The Messiah that Samuel spoke of. That David prayed for. You see, Jesus Christ is a part of this great biblical rich history. He is the culmination. This is what Peter is laying forth for them. He says, you have needed, you have waited for this one forever. And he preaches very directly at them. Much more directly, I dare say, than many of us would. Look at verse 13. Beginning in 13... Four times he addresses them directly. We might even imagine in our mind's eye with finger pointed. You, you did this. You delivered him over. You denied him in the presence of Pilate. You denied the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. And once again, we might think, Peter, have you not taken a speaking class? You don't. Start out with that kind of hostility to your audience. Maybe you should say some or certain persons or better yet say certain parties. Level it off a little bit. But you see, Peter doesn't do that. He's very direct. He says, you killed Jesus Christ. Now, this is very un-PC. Why does he do this? Because he needs to show them their need of the gospel. That they are not as good as they think they are. And so, if in the spirit, if not the power of Peter, I say to you this morning, you killed Jesus Christ. You put him on the cross. Your selfishness, your lying, your murdering, your sin killed Jesus. And so did mine. We are just in need of the gospel. Jesus did not go up upon the cross as a theory. He went because the sin of sinners placed him there. Because love drew him there. To provide atonement for a people who so desperately need it. This is the need of the gospel. It's a need that you have. It's a need that I have. It's a need we have today. And so what is then this gospel that Peter lays out for us? He tells us that the gospel really is twofold. The gospel demands of us faith 
and it demands of us repentance. We might think of them as two sides of the same coin. The famous Puritan Thomas Watson gave us a wonderful illustration. He said, faith and repentance are the two wings that will lift us up to heaven. First, let's look at faith. What does it mean to have faith? Peter says that by the name of Jesus Christ, here in verse 16, it was by faith in his name, it was by faith that he was made strong and made perfectly whole. And this follows on his almost surprised reply to them. Excuse me. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder? Why are you looking at us? Why do you suppose that it was us, it was our power or our piety that made this man whole? You see, the first thing we need to understand about faith is that it is external to us. Faith and its power does not come from us. Peter says this clearly. He says it's not by our power that this was done. It's not like we had some sufficient reserve of strength. Do you feel like that sometimes? Or perhaps more often you feel like the reverse. You feel like there's no hope because you don't have any power. You're tired. You're lonely. You hurt. And you wonder how you could make any difference in your own life or anyone else's life. Because you just don't have any power. Peter says to you now, I say to you now today, that is the best place to start. You have no power? That's great. You see that we must start outside of ourselves. There's no power in us. And Peter also attacks the second temptation that we would have. He says, do you suppose it's by some kind of piety, some kind of piety in us that we did this? It's not in us. It's not our nature that has caused this. It wasn't through our power or our piety. Do you sometimes feel like that as well? That you need to work up in yourself a sufficient level of godliness before God will love you. That you need to smooth out the rough edges of your life. That you need to make sure that your speech is all cleaned up. That your life is as clean as you can get it. And so you take out the, the Clorox and the, the Windex and you try and clean up your life. But it's like a mirror with a spot that you can never get out. Because it's not just a spot of dirt. It's a scratch. It's a marredness. It's a brokenness. You see, faith does not come from us. It comes from God. This is what Peter says in verse 15. He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised from the dead. You see, there's a contrast. From us comes corruption and death. From God comes life and salvation. What an irony. He says, you killed the author of life. The very one who was life, you killed. But God was at work, raising him up from the dead. Faith is external to us. It is not something we conjure up on our own. But a second and important thing about faith is that it has an object. You will notice that Peter didn't just say, well, the beggar believed. You know, there's a lot of believing that goes on in America today. Have you noticed that? 
If you're a watcher of Larry King, people are always saying those magical words. Well, you know, I'm quite spiritual. Well, what does that mean? Well, I believe. Well, you believe in what? Well, I believe in having hope. Okay, what really do you believe in? And it basically comes down to, I believe in believing. I believe in myself. And you see, that's not how faith is. Faith must have an object. And this works its way into the church as well, this error. We think that God sees us believing and grants us salvation based on that. Because we were good enough and smart enough to have faith. And God looks and He says, well, I don't want these works, but that faith, no. Faith has an object. It is not faith that's healed the beggar. It was Jesus Christ. It was faith in the name of Jesus Christ, in the authority and power of Jesus Christ. That is what healed him. And so faith must have an object. If you would be saved, if you would live with the Lord for eternity, if you would know the blessedness of salvation, you must not just have faith, beloved. You must have faith in Jesus Christ the Son of the living God, and Him alone. It is only that that will save. No other kind of faith will save. You can have faith that eating more broccoli will make you healthy. It may or it may not. You can have faith that you would lose weight if you exercised more. But it is only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that will change your life forever. It is only faith by casting ourselves completely on Jesus. No reserves. You can't have faith in Jesus and hold out. You know you've done that in the past. Perhaps when you were a child, you were playing with marbles or playing with toys, and your mother said, please give them to me. And you did one of these. And you were holding one behind your back, hoping mom didn't notice that you'd have one extra. See, God sees the hand behind your back. You can't hold out and say, well, you know, I have faith in Jesus, but I really need my retirement fund. I have faith in Jesus, but I really couldn't survive without my husband or my wife. No, faith is casting yourself completely on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is an action. It is believing what God has said is true. Believing on God's word. Do you see Peter telling us this? He says, all of these things God has foretold. He has put before you in his word. You are to believe him. And you see, that was the problem with the Jews. It was not that they were hostile to Jesus, though they were. It was not that they didn't like the disciples, though they didn't. Their fault was that they did not believe God at His word. The Lord of heaven, the Lord of glory said, This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And they looked at God and said, Not so much. You see, the temptation comes to us too, not to believe everything God has said, and to trust upon it. That's a challenge for you right here, right now. To trust 
the Lord in all he has said. The gospel demands not only faith, the gospel also demands something else, something perhaps even less popular today than faith. And that is repentance. Now, I want you to notice something here. In verse 17, Peter changes the mode of his address while still being very direct. You see, he had initially addressed them as men of Israel. And now what does he do in verse 17? He says, and now... Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. You see, he shifts his tone. He begins to speak to them as brothers. And the reason is, he's about to tell them once again that they must do something that they are not willing to do. He says, you must repent. You must move away. You must turn aside. Because you see, repentance is the twin of faith. And what does repentance mean? Well, the first thing that repentance means is it means recognizing our sin. Do you see what he does there? He reminds them that they acted. He says they acted in ignorance, but he says, you acted. And you acted contrary to what God had foretold through the mouth of all of his prophets. You, you are the ones who killed Jesus Christ, who killed the Lord of glory. You must know it and you must own it. Because you see, one of the things that repentance deals with is the guilt that we carry around. Sin is not just simply doing wrong things. It is that nagging little voice that keeps us up at night. It is the guilt that weighs us down for wrong choices. And Peter addresses them because he wants them to address this guilt. He wants them to move away from this guilt, to leave it behind. You see, that's what the gospel has for you. The gospel wants you to leave guilt behind. Not to see it as unimportant, but rather instead to see it as dealt with, atoned for, finished, kaput. That it is no more a burden for you. And you see... When we do this, we must again take action. Repentance, like faith, is action. It is more than just being sorry for our sins. Paul says that a godly sorrow produces repentance, but a worldly sorrow produces nothing. You've seen this in action too. Perhaps you have even said you were sorry to someone simply because you were sorry you got caught. That's not the kind of sorrow here that repentance brings. Repentance brings a change of action. See what Peter says here. He tells them in verse 19 to repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance is a turning away from sin. The word here for turning away is the word that we would use for converted. Because you see, that's what convert means. To turn around. To turn away. Repentance is turning away from a life of sin and going toward a life of godliness. There is no other hope. No faith is real without repentance. They are inseparable like two sides of a coin. We are called to turn away from sin and toward God. Is that the tenor of your life? When someone asks you, 
if you have been converted, do you think about it solely in terms of standing up and giving a testimony? Or perhaps going forward to an altar or a campfire? Or when you think of being converted, do you think of the entirety of your life changed? The way you view your spouse, the way you view your children, the way you view your money, the way you view your job. Everything turned away from self and toward God. This is the demand of the gospel, faith, and repentance. Thirdly and lastly, Peter begins to describe for us the promise of the gospel. Now I want you to see that this is the tenor of every gospel presentation. We have a need for the gospel. The gospel demands our faith and repentance. And the promise of the gospel is this. It is first and foremost forgiveness. And secondly, it is restoration. First, it is forgiveness. You see that Peter says here in verse 17, Brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Now we might look at this text and say, well, Peter is letting them off pretty easy. Aren't these some of the folks who were standing out at the cross yelling, crucify him, crucify him? Did they not know he was going to die? Did they not know what they were doing? And the answer is yes and no. You see, yes, they knew they were crucifying Jesus Christ. Yes, they knew they were crucifying an innocent man. But they were ignorant as to the implications of that, of the consequences of that. That's why our Lord says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, lest you think, that now I am letting them off easy. You must think about why this ignorance has come about. This is not ignorance because they were denied a good education. This is not ignorance because it was a denial of facts. This is ignorance because in their willful rebellion, they determined not to listen to, not to know anything God had told them. Peter had just said, God had been telling you about Jesus for thousands of years. And you were ignorant of it. Why? Because you chose not to listen. It's a part of that rebellion, that need of the gospel. You see, this ignorance is not an ignorance that excuses, but it is an ignorance that allows us to understand that sin is forgivable. You see, when we sin, we really don't have a full knowledge of the consequences of our sin. It hasn't been brought home to us. That's why God needs to speak to us in His Word and remind us of the consequences of sin. You see, the world wants to take sin and ignore it. To put it in a corner or cover it up with a blanket and pretend it's not there. But Peter won't have that. You see, sin is not to be ignored. It is to be acknowledged and forgiven. And he uses this wondrous phrase. He says that your sins may be blotted out. Wiped clean. Have you ever heard the phrase clean slate? That's what this is about. You see, you take a rag or a sponge and a slate that has writing all over it 
and you just simply wipe it clean. All of the writing that had been written against you has been blotted out in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the wonder of the gospel. But it goes beyond that, beloved. Not only are our sins blotted out by Jesus Christ, once we have had faith in Him and we have repented of our sins, also we begin then to see the restoration that God brings. Look at verse 20. Peter says, you repent not only that your sins may be blotted out, but that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And this, I think, has two connotations. The first is something we all experience. Dry spells. Patches in our life that are like dry patches of skin. When we're going through the motions. When we're not quite sure why we're doing what we're doing. And you see, Peter says, times of refreshing are coming in the gospel. You see, the gospel is not just about avoiding hell. The gospel is about revival in the church. It's about joy with God's people. It's about knowing a life that is fresh. It's like that cool breeze that comes in the Houston pre-summer. When it's hot, but not unbearably hot, and muggy, but not unbearably muggy. And then that cool breeze comes through. And you could sit outside all night because it's refreshing. You see, that's what the gospel is for our soul. In the midst of challenges of work and economic downturns and all of the troubles that we have, the gospel brings refreshing restoration to our souls. But it's also something that we look forward to finally. A refreshment finally as God restores all things, Peter says. He restores everything by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we experience that blessing that comes from knowing we are part of God's covenant, knowing we are part of God's people. Do you know that blessedness, beloved? Do you know the refreshment of the gospel? If you don't, if perhaps this is the first time ever this morning that you have truly heard of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, of your need for it, and of your need for faith and repentance, that I would have you have this restoration and refreshment. It is the prayer of my heart. Put your faith and trust alone in Jesus. Repent of your sins and know God's refreshing, cool breeze. 